0: Welcome to hour number one of Sports Talk New York, here on WGBB in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the 29th day of October, 2023. The year's just rushing by. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is across the way running the board and at the helm tonight. And we got a great show lined up for you. As always, leading off tonight... We welcome in the great Hall of Fame defenseman of the Rangers, Bruins, and Red Wings. Brad Park will join us. In the second half, we will speak to author Rick Carpinello about his new book, The Franchise, The New York Rangers, A Curated History of the Blue Shirts. So it's all Broadway Blue Shirts tonight, folks. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy the show. we got some great people, some great stories up ahead. As always... I invite you to follow us on social media. I am out there. The page is called The Talk of New York Sports. You'll find show information, sports information, so much more. So stop by, take a look. You can also follow us on X. At Sports Talk New York, and follow me on X at B Donahue, WGBB. And if you miss a show on a Sunday night, don't worry about it because they're all out on the website the next day. You can catch up anytime you want. Well, our first guest is considered one of the finest defensemen of his era. He is a seven time All Star, and in 1988 was elected to the Hockey Hall of Fame. In 2017, he was named one of the top 100 hockey players in history uh, for the 100th anniversary of the National Hockey League. We're happy to be able to welcome in tonight on Sports Talk New York, Brad Park. Brad, good evening.
1: Good evening. How are you, Bill?
0: We're doing wonderful here, Brad. I hope you're doing the same.
1: Yeah, I'm actually doing very well, thank you.
0: Very good. Now. You were drafted by the Rangers in the first round, second pick overall in 1966. You had a short stint with Buffalo. How did you feel about coming to the Rangers? I know you're a Toronto boy. You probably uh, were looking to go to the Maple Leafs, but instead you come to the Big Apple. How did you feel about that?
1: Well, it was a little different back then. I grew up in Toronto, and I was definitely a Leaf fan uh you know, I was a, a, a good homer those days. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing about the draft, it wasn't a big deal back then. Uh, you know, there was no a congregation of teams. Uh, they made a draft in secret, and they put it in the newspaper, and that's how I found out that I got drafted by the Rangers.
0: Ah, gotcha. Okay, not, not the big fanfare uh, with jerseys and hats and the whole nine yards that they go through today. Now, uh, you were popular with uh, the local fans and the media because, uh, your offensive skill, uh, pugnacious, we'll call you. Uh, <laughs> you, you even, you even drew comparisons with Bobby Orr. Now, how did you feel about that? Brad, I mean, to be compared with Bobby Orr, I guess you could take it one of two ways. I mean, he was universally considered to be the best defenseman, but then again, he was looked on as one of the greatest ever to lace him up.
1: I mean, that's true. I mean, Bobby and I are the same age, uh, he's a few months older than I am. He came in as a, an 18-year-old, and I came in as a 20-year-old. Um, I never played defense till I was 15, so I was a forward. Uh, and uh, because of that, I had these offensive skills, and I, you know, I got to credit Emil Francis for not holding me back and allowing me to, you know, jump into the rush. And the more I did it, the more success that I had, the more success the team had. Uh, so it seemed like a, a natural rivalry because with Bobby, because the Bruins and the Rangers had, you know, a great rivalry. The Knicks and the Celtics had the rivalry, and. Uh, You know, the Yankees and the Red Sox. So it's just a a, a real rivalry between New York and Boston.
0: That is so true, Brad. Now, let's talk a little bit about the cat, Emil Francis. I remember those great teams in in the uh, early 70s. You you came up short in the finals that year. I think it was 72 against the Bruins in in six games. But uh, it was a great team, great bunch of guys, but you, you just couldn't get over the hump.
1: Well, it was I mean the, uh, there were a lot of good teams back then. You know, Montreal had a you know they had a great team, Boston, uh, you know, or was the difference in, in our series because he was that good. Uh, you know you went along uh, uh, Montreal won the next year, then Philadelphia came in with the Broad Street bullies, and mm-hmm. they kind of uh, stole two, you know, two Stanley Cups. Uh, they changed the way hockey was played, and uh, you know, there was just a lot of good teams. Chicago had a great team. It was Hull and Makita so mm-hmm. uh, you know it was very competitive hockey.
0: Now I remember my dad used to take me to Skateland over in New Hyde Park on Hillside Avenue. What memories do you have of that the old barn there on on uh, Hillside Avenue?
1: Well, I remember my first visit there. Yeah. I rode out in the van with the equipment and the trainers and I'm helping uh, Jimmy Young unload the bags and I'm bringing them from the truck inside the rink, and he's throwing them into the basement and uh it's like he was a, and as he's throwing them down the stairs into the basement, I said, Jimmy, why don't you turn the lights on?" He said, "I'm not turning on the lights so the rats leave. <laughs> yeah it was it was kind of an
0: old facility I remember instead of glass, they had fencing around uh, the ends of the rink. And I uh, I remember getting hit more than once with a with a bunch of ice from a guy uh pulling up and uh stopping the skate there and it was you you were just so close to you guys and uh, it was it was uh, a great place I think
1: Yeah, I mean we used to we used to draw you know a couple hundred people just to watch practice which it yeah. was uh, you know wonderful and uh, you know it just brought us closer to the fans
0: That is that is very true now, the the World Hockey Association, Brad, uh, they, they lured away a bunch of players uh, from the NHL back in the day. And uh, were you ever pursued by the WHA?
1: Yeah, I was probably three or four hours away from going to a press conference. Wow, okay. And uh, uh, basically, a guy by the name of Nick Belletti was running the uh, Cleveland team, the Cleveland Barons, um, we had a deal. We made- we had agreed on a uh, a five year deal, and I told him I had to go back and talk to Emil Francis. And he said, "You don't owe the Rangers anything." I said, "No, but I do owe Emil." Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. you know, I took less money to stay in New York, and over the long run, it was it was the right decision. Yeah, they
0: they didn't fare too well in the end. Uh, I remember the New York team was the Raiders, and. Uh, It just seemed funny to see some guys like Bernie Perrant and Derek Sanderson in those uniforms of the World Hockey Association. Uh, Just a a funny sight for for a a fan being so used to the National Hockey League. And and I want to talk to you, Brad. We're speaking of Brad Park, by the way, tonight on Sports Talk New York. The Summit Series in 1972. Now, Bobby yours hurt. So so you're you're the key blue liner on that team.
1: Yeah, it's probably, uh, you know, the greatest comeback in the history of sports was during the, you know, the Cold War era mm-hmm. uh, when the, you know, when they, were, they weren't Russians, they were Soviets, and they had been winning the world championships and uh, the Olympics, you know, year in and year out. And they structured an eight-game series, Four games in Canada and four games in Moscow. And, uh, you know, from day one, we weren't in the best shape, and they were skating rings around us. So by the time we got to Moscow, you know, we'd won one game, tied one, lost two. And we lost game five in uh, Moscow. And so the only way to win the series was win the last three games in Moscow. Uh, A lot of things happened. Uh, we ended up uh, winning Game uh, Six. We won Game Seven. Game Eight, uh, we ended up winning it with 34 seconds to go. Yeah,
0: what an outstanding effort that was! Uh, it's it's legendary that 72 Summit Series. What were your impressions of the Soviet Union, Brad?
1: Well, we had the opportunity not only to play the Soviets, who are you know great players, uh, but we also went and played two games in Sweden with the Swedish national team, and after the series, we went to Prague, and we played the Czech. and I think what that just showed everybody was that uh, where they had been writing off Europeans as competitive players, it changed everybody's mind, and then the NHL started to bring over more European players.
0: Right, yeah, and and, uh, that's uh, a practice that really uh, goes to this day, bringing the Europeans over, certainly make an impact in the National Hockey League. Now, now the Rangers in 75-76, they they really started poorly. The worst start in about 10 years, I think it was. And uh, Emil Francis decides to unload some veterans, and you and Jean Rattel... We're part of that. And did, did Emil give you any hint that you might be traveling or, or, or what?
1: No, the year before, uh, we lost a two out of three to the Islanders. And the Bruins lost a two out of three to Chicago. It was the last time they ever had a two out of three series uh, because the Bruins and ourselves were two of the best teams. And we were out because of a two out of three. Uh, the next year, uh, Emil and to this day, I believe that the board of directors of Gulf and Western uh, told him to disperse the team because they made a trade in the summer and three guys went to St. Louis. Uh, and then they uh, started to Eddie Jockman went on waivers, Joe filmer went, Derek Sanderson went. And uh, but I thought that you know, I was the highest paid guy on the Rangers, I was the captain thought i had a little bit more security but it didn't work out that way
0: no it didn't and for folks that are uh, unfamiliar and for the uninitiated brad goes to the boston bruins with john Ratel and joe zanussi and in exchange for phil esposito and carol vadney coming to the blue shirts and uh that that was certainly a blockbuster deal and the the press and the public Kind of thought that you were over the hill, which certainly wasn't the case
1: well i I'd, I'd had knee problems uh you know uh, strained ligaments, et cetera uh, the The other thing that uh, uh, they were looking at me as maybe not having a lot of time left on my career, mm-hmm. and uh, when they traded me to Boston. And I was uh, the youngest guy in the deal at at, uh, 27 years old. I was in my prime. And I played another 10 years. Right. Uh, So they they were a little mistaken.
0: Yeah, exactly. You went on to have some of your best years in in Boston. And uh, proved that the, uh, I guess it's Gulf and Western, uh, made a big mistake there. Now, now, you, you just mentioned the Islanders. Was that... A big rivalry from the word go with you and the Islanders,
1: Brad? Well, it didn't start out that way. I think the Islanders had a tough time keeping up with us. And, uh, you know, we were winning all the games. But that two out of three series, uh, you know, they came into uh, New York and they beat us like 2-1. We went back to the Island. We beat them 7-3. And uh, now we get to the, the game three. And uh, we're losing three nothing. in the third period we, we we tie it up, we hit two posts and uh, forcing overtime and 11 seconds into overtime, there's a turnover and the puck ends up in our net. But if it had been a you know a seven five or seven game series, I don't think that uh, you know they would be this.
0: Good point. Yeah, that, that certainly seems to be true, Brad. But uh, all it did, too, the rivalry, then you you weren't uh, only compared to Bobby Orr. They bring Dennis Potvin into, into the equation and started comparing you to him.
1: Well, I was older, so they had to compare him to me.
0: Right, yeah.
1: But <laughs> uh-huh. so Dennis came in, and he was a major factor for the Islanders. He was a great player, trust me.
0: Yeah, definitely so. And uh, Esposito and Vadne, uh, effective players for the Rangers, but the team remained in a bad spot in the standings. They fired the cat, Emil Francis, and uh, you guys, you and Jean Rattel, go on to have uh, some of the best years of your career with the Boston Bruins.
1: Well, it's true. I mean, uh, Boston had a, a real good nucleus of players and uh ratty and i you know fitted in very well you know we were you know we didn't go in there and and try to take control we worked our way in got to meet the guys got to establish relationships and don cherry was the coach and he formed uh, probably the biggest toughest hockey team that's ever been assembled uh called it the lunch athletic club (laughs) lunch ac yeah and uh you know, we uh, we went to the finals a couple of times with Montreal. And, uh, you know, they had like uh, 13 Hall of Famers in those teams. And the first year we lost four straight. The next year in the finals we took them to six games. The third year we faced them in the semifinals. And we went seven games. We were leading uh, with a couple of minutes to go. Too many men on the ice. The ties it on a power play, oh, and then we lose in overtime. And then the uh, Montreal has to play the Rangers, who beat the Islanders, and Montreal beat the Rangers in five games.
0: Right, and the rest is history, as they say. Now, Don Cherry, who you just mentioned, great coach. Uh, he he really wanted you to concentrate more on defense than uh, than being an offensive defenseman, so to speak.
1: Well, he came to me and he said, look, you know, I don't want you rushing the puck. Mm-hmm. I don't want you jumping in the play. I said, I've got to play you 35, 40 minutes a game. And if you're rushing up the ice, by the time you get to the third period, you're not going to have any juice left. So I want you to control our half of center ice. And then in the last 10 minutes, if we're tied or we're behind, you've got a green light. And he said, can you live with that? I said, if you're going to play me 35, 40 minutes a game, I can live with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's basically what we did.
0: Now, uh, it must have been a tough transaction, to Brad Brad Park, with us tonight on Sports Talk New York, with the fans, too, because the fans uh, in Boston uh, warming up to a new guy takes a while.
1: Well, there is a history there, because I wrote a book uh, – I'll play the man, and I wasn't very kind to the Boston Gardens or the Boston fans, <laughs> and uh, I was public enemy number one. Um, the threatening fan mail I used to get—that it was so bad that they threatened me and my wife—and uh, I used to get the FBI used to walk me from the dressing room to the rink, oh, from man. the rink to the dressing room. Unbelievable That's, uh, how how yeah. hated I was. Terrible. Yeah. Yeah, but once I got there and played 10 games with Bobby Orr and they got a a, a look at, you know, what was possible um, and the team started to win, uh, you know, they turned around uh, unbelievable and they're great fans, trust me.
0: Yeah, there, it was a relatively smooth transition after that. And there's even a story I read, Brad, where you ran out of gas one night and a couple of guys helped you and you gave them free tickets to the next game. <laughs>
1: Well yeah, that's that's a funny story because uh my I'd ran in i rode into the game with John Rattel and the wives came in later and I got into the uh the car after the game and we're going back to the north shore and I look at the car and I said to my wife I said, Honey, there's no gas in the car She says, There's enough Yeah, I said, Honey, there's no gas in the car. There's enough. <laughs> well, it's snowing out and we almost get home, probably a mile and a half from home, and we run out of gas. <laughs> now, her parents are with us, and so they all sit in the car, and I get out trying to flag somebody down. And these two guys stop. I said, look, I'm out of gas. You know, there's no gas stations open. It's 11 o'clock at night. Can you give us a ride up to our street? And they said, sure. So as we're riding up, I said, are you guys a Bruins fan?" Oh, we love the Bruins. They're great, right? I said, well, let me introduce myself. My name is Brad Park. Give me your name and your phone number, and the next game you've got tickets. Nice.
0: Yeah, it paid off for those kids. Yeah, a great story. Brad Park with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, your career overlapped with uh, another great defenseman enters the scene, Ray Bork,
1: Yes. And uh, Ray came in in 79 as an 18-year-old. And uh, uh, right away you could tell, you know, what a powerful player he was going to be. Yeah. And uh, so he, I became his mentor for his first four years. And he would pick my brain. And I, you know, not only, you know, I knew his ability, but I really said, okay, you got to understand how to think the game. Because there's a reason for everything that you do. Trying to think it going 100 miles an hour is a different story. Mm-hmm. But if you if you understand it, you make the decisions quicker. And uh, he was such a powerful player, and had an amazing career. To this day, he's still a good friend. That's good. Yeah, he
0: he. You certainly set him off on the right track. That that's for sure, Brad. Now you came so close so many times with with the Rangers uh that that year that uh i think it was the the against the bruins right and then uh coming to to the bruins some rough losses there looking back is is there any one Brad that sticks to you the most or, or is it the time with the rangers what do you think
1: well i kind of you know i, I was just starting my eighth year with the rangers uh when i got traded and went to the bruins played. uh I actually played a few more games for the Bruins than I did for the Rangers. Uh, So I just tell people it all depends on which side of Hartford I'm on. (laughs) On one side I'm a Ranger, and on the other side I'm a Bruin. Good way to look at it, Brad. Yeah, that's true. Now,
0: in, in I think it was 83, 84, you signed with the Red Wings. And uh, that was uh, through free agency, and you won the Masterson Trophy, which for folks who may not know, is given for perseverance as a hockey player and uh, you, you have to be pretty proud to win the Masterson.
1: Yeah, it was I mean it, it's a great honor. Uh, Bill Masterson had passed away while playing uh, on the ice. He fell down and hit his head, and they um, basically is the award for dedication perseverance uh in a game of hockey uh and when i went to detroit uh they hadn't made the playoffs in seven years and we made the playoffs and they hadn't made the playoffs back to back in 17 years and we made the playoffs and uh it was at that point that uh, you know um i decided i was going to you know hang them up
0: right yeah the knees just weren't there anymore and uh You did serve as the Red Wings' head coach for a while. How did you feel about getting into coaching, Brad?
1: Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I I went back the following year and took over the team uh, around New Year's, and the team was in last place, and I guess I was good enough to keep them there. But... uh... (laughs) The, the interesting thing was our best player was a guy named Stevie Iserman. Right. Two weeks after I took over, he broke his collarbone and was out for the season, so that that didn't help a whole bunch. No, not
0: at all. And uh,
1: but anyway, I, enjoyed it, and I had you know had a personality conflict with the general manager, and uh, so you know I only got half a year, and then I was let go. Uh, and I looked at my wife. I said, "Look, we've got five kids. My second son has." Terrible palsy. I said, "I'm not going to move around the country just to coach." So we we moved back to the Boston area.
0: Right. Uh, good move. Uh, take care of your family, Brad. You got it. Now, you were, you even did some time in the booth. And how'd you get into the broadcast end of, end of the the business?
1: Well, when I was with the Bruins, <coughs> the WHA came in, and uh, uh, I was out with an injury for a couple weeks and uh, the Bruins get a call from ESPN and they're doing uh, the Whaler Games in uh, Springfield and they want to know if I would come down and do uh, you know as a color analyst and the Bruins said go ahead if you want and I said okay so I went down and tried it and the producer who was running the the show ended up uh, being the producer for TTV in Canada eventually, and also with ESPN. So I was, uh, you know, after I retired, I was doing both of those, uh, you know, games in the week.
0: Yeah. Uh, Not bad gig to have, too, Brad. Now, is there any one player when when you're a young kid coming into the league, any one player you step on the ice and see the other guy and you're like, oh, man, I can't believe I'm playing on the same ice as this guy. Who comes to mind with, with that?
1: Well, I'll tell you what. Back in the 60s, there was an article in McLean's magazine, and it uh, was all about Bobby Hull. Uh And it had a picture of him bailing hay, and people could go online and put, you know, Bobby Hull bailing hay, and there will be a number of pictures comes up. And he had his shirt off. He was jacked like Arnold Schwarzenegger, (laughs) like you wouldn't believe. And I'm 15 years old, and I'm watching, looking at that picture, and then five years later, I'm in the league, and he's coming down the wing, and all I can do is think about that picture.
0: Dalen Hay.
1: <laughs> That's
0: great. What a great story. Yeah, uh, we've had Bobby on the program, the nicest man you could, you could want to speak to, great guy, and uh, certainly missed around the world of hockey. Now, in 1988, Brad, uh, I guess it could be the pinnacle of your career, elected to the Hockey Hall of Fame in your first year of eligibility.
1: Yeah, that was very exciting because being from Toronto and the Hall of Fame was in Toronto, it was the the one year where they I got elected in the Hall of Fame and they were in transition from uh, the CNE, which is a facility down on the waterfront, and they were moving, in the process of moving, to uh, the location they are now, which was in, bu- in the in a building uh, with a bank, and uh, so I get inducted and I can't even go and look at myself in the hall.
2: <laughs> but <laughs> it was it
1: was so exciting. Cause I got to bring all my kids, my wife, uh, my parents were there, my aunt and uncle, uh, my siblings. So it was such a thrill.
0: Who, Brad, would you say was your greatest teammate through the years, over the years of Boston, uh, New York, Detroit? Who's, who's the guy who was your man?
1: Well, I'll tell you what. I played 13 years with John Rattel. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just an amazing guy to play with there in uh, first class. Uh, but the guy I broke in with uh, to this day is probably one of my best friends. His name is Walter Kachuk. Sure. Yeah, And uh, we, uh, we roomed together, lived together the first year, and, uh, you know, we bonded. He's from South Porcupine, I'm from Toronto. Uh, in Boston, there were other people. Uh, Terry O'Reilly uh, was, uh, you know, uh, the heart and soul of the Bruins. Tough guy. When, yeah. I went, you know, when I went to Detroit, I ended up uh, in training camp room with Danny Gare, mm-hmm. who was just a first-class individual.
0: Yeah, Walter Kachuk. There's a name for you folks. Uh, What a hockey player. Didn't get all the headlines that he deserved, but every night he went out there and broke it. And uh, just a wonderful hockey player. Uh,
1: People don't realize that, you know, with the gag line, that in a couple of years he led the team in scoring.
0: Yeah, that's true. You had the gag line with... Rattel and Hatfield and Gilbert, and Walter centered on the next line, I believe, uh, Brad. Uh, was Billy Fairburn on that line, too?
1: Billy Fairburn, and at first it was Dave Ballon, and then uh, Steve Vickers came in.
0: Right, yeah. All, all great guys. And that, That's why I say those teams should have won at least one Stanley Cup. I mean... I, I used to root like anything for the Islanders. I, used to, uh, no, I mean the Rangers. They they used to be on Channel 9 in New York. And uh, j- just a, a great team with, under the tutelage of Emil the Cat Francis. And it, it's a real shame you guys couldn't do anymore.
1: You, you know something about Channel 9? Yeah. The Rangers only televised the away games. They didn't right. televised the home games. Yeah, that's right. right. They, they figured it would hurt the gate. But anyway, Channel 9, who had all those games, right, never saved them. They taped over them.
0: Oh, man. There's some great stuff. There's
1: there's very little uh, footage of those games from that era.
0: Yeah. What what, what a shame that is. And the broadcasters are great, too. Jim Gordon, uh, the Big Whistle, Bill Chadwick, right? Oh, yeah. Great guys. Well, Brad, I'll tell you, it's been a real pleasure We thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us down here on Long Island. We wish you the best, uh, all the best of health to you and your family, and uh, we hope to talk to you again.
1: Okay, Bill. Appreciate it. Thank you. You
0: take care. That's
1: Brad Park, ladies and gentlemen. Up next
0: on Sports Talk New York, we welcome in author Rick Carpignello and more Broadway Blue Shirts talk, folks, so stick around.
1: You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to Sports Talk New York here on WGBB. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for hanging with us tonight. I appreciate it. Great conversation with Brad Park, one of my favorites from my youth. Number two on the blue line for the New York Rangers. Uh, the Jets and Giants today at Rainy MetLife Stadium. I tell you, an ugly game. But the Jets come out on top, which is the main thing. Uh, they won by a field goal with one second left on the clock. And believe it or not, I really have to hand it to to Zach Wilson much maligned by the media, the fans, and even by me, and he stuck in there today, came up big when it was needed, and like um, it was Hall of Famer Bill Parcell said, you're as good as your record says you are, and this one goes uh, a big W for gang green, so we will uh, mark that down and move on with that. The fall classic, folks, in full swing, as you know, with the Rangers and the Diamondbacks, they're tied at one game apiece. And these these two teams are really a perfect example of the adage, just get in to the playoffs. You get hot at the right time, and you may just find yourself uh, with a ring. No game tonight in the World Series. They'll move to the desert on Monday night, and I I still think it's going to be a great series. On a sad note, it's hard to say goodbye to a baseball lifer in Dusty Baker, who has decided to hang him up uh, after uh, many years as a player and a manager, His next stop along the way may just be Cooperstown. Uh, Looking to enjoy the series now I am, now that the Braves and the Phillies are gone. I hope it goes seven games, and I hope it goes seven games just to prolong the season. And then I will start my countdown to pitches and catches, which uh, I do all winter. As Rogers Hornsby said when asked what he does all winter, he said, "I stare out the window and wait for spring. That's what I do, and that's about it. That's that's all us baseball fans live for is February 28th, when pitchers and catchers report down in Port St. Lucie. And uh, there are the nights also in the winter where I get to share sports talk and memories with with you folks, and that that kind of is the best of all. But our next guest." He covered the Rangers for the Journal News and The Athletic from 1978 through 2021. He's written two previous books on the team, Messier, Hockey's Dragon Slayer, and Nightmare on 33rd Street. He contributed stories regularly to USA Today, The Hockey News, Sports Illustrated, and more. His latest work is from our good friends at Triumph in Chicago. It's called The Franchise, The New York Rangers, a Curated History of the Blue Shirts. And uh, this gentleman is also known worldwide as the cousin of the great Charlie Giacomo, with whom I was fortunate enough, I had the honor to attend the State University of New York at Oswego with. And we welcome to the show tonight, Rick Carpinyello. Rick, good evening.
3: Hi, <laughs> Joel. Now that's an introduction. i tell you, Throwing Charlie Giacomo in there—that's really that really hits home for me. But uh, thanks so much for having me on tonight. I, pre- I appreciate a, a chance to talk about the book and talk about the Rangers, and uh, and it's an absolute honor to, to follow Mr. Brad Park.
0: Oh, we had a great chat. Yeah, one of one of my favorites from my youth, uh, Rick. Uh, good old yeah. number two.
3: Yeah. Now, what
0: what made you decide, Rick, to uh, pull this together—a really great chronicle? On the history of one of the original six, the storied New York Rangers.
3: Well, you know, I, I I just felt I had so many anecdotes over the years, so many stories, you know, little quick hit stories uh, in the back of my brain somewhere, and um, you know, as we get older, sometimes those things disappear. <laughs> so I thought, while well, I still had them, I, I wanted to get them down on paper and. Um, and I spoke to uh, Bill Ames over at Triumph Books uh, for a couple of years before I retired, and he wanted to do uh, a project like this yeah. for a while. Uh, I just didn't want to do it until I retired and had the time to actually sit down and, you know, put in the work. Nice. So yeah. uh, so when I retired, I said, hey, let's do it, you know, and, and let's see how it goes. And, uh, and it went pretty smoothly. So uh, we're now at the finish line.
0: Yes, you certainly are good, folks out there in Chicago with yep. Triumph. I enjoy working with Bill myself; a, a good man. Now, yep. uh, the the guy who wrote the forward, of course, a great candidate. Uh, what made you choose Brian Leach over and over any other person?
3: Well, he's the, probably the guy on the team who with whom I have the closest relationship. Um, okay, you know, we text we text all the time, and he did the forward on my Messier book also. Um, he, he's become a real good friend over the years. Uh, you know, when, when, when I was covering him, we had a really good professional relationship, but after he retired uh, and, and after he left the Rangers, um, it became more of a friendship. Um, so he was a natural fit for me. I think I probably could have called on a few other guys, and Mike Richter did some uh, blurbs for the book uh, jacket. And I probably right. could have called on him. And I probably could have called on Adam Graves and, and some others, certainly. But um, I just felt Brian was Brian was the guy. I think he's the great, the greatest um, Ranger of all time in terms mm-hmm. of you know being being drafted and developed by that team and staying with it virtually his whole career. Right,
0: not a poor choice at all, Rick. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Yeah, that's, that's perfectly fine. Now uh, yeah. we'll we'll go to the book right now, and uh, you you of course segmented up in your chapters and the the early close calls uh talk about that a little bit
3: well you know the the first year that i was on the beat was 78 79 and, and that was a tremendous tremendous year that was um a year like no other when they went to the stanley cup final just completely out of the blue uh you know they they rode john davidson's Broad shoulders and goal, and <laughs> uh, and, they, and they had Phil zito and they had the Maloney boys, and Greshner, and Dugay, and they had, a, they had a real cast of characters. Um, but they, you know, they they pulled off some upsets along the way, and especially the one uh, against the Islanders in this what was then known as the semifinals, um, when they beat the Islanders, who were the best team in the league that year, and who after that series. Would go on to win 19 consecutive playoff series and four straight Stanley Cups. So, right. Yeah. Uh, that's you know that's a pretty unlikely win right there. <laughs> and then and then to go up to Montreal and to go up one nothing in the series and two nothing in game two, um, they really almost shocked the world. But uh, that that team had, I think Montreal took over that series one way or the other it was going to win that series, but the Rangers also didn't help themselves by. Uh, partying it up a little bit too heavily in Montreal uh, after games one and two.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What are you going to do? <laughs>
0: but
3: <laughs> the, so many,
0: Rick, so many close calls for for the Ranger franchise. Yeah. As Brad and I were talking about, it was uh, gee, I forget the year now seventy two when they go yeah. to the finals against the Boston Bruins. And those those I always thought those Emil Francis led teams. Should have come up with a Stanley Cup somewhere along the line.
3: Yeah, and I, you know I don't go into that into the book in the books too much because that was before my time on the beat. But right. um, a friend of mine, George Grimm, wrote a wrote a book called "We Did Everything But Win," and it was mm-hmm. about those teams in the early seventies who were probably the second best team in the league for a whole number of years there. Uh, but they always came up just a little short to Boston and to uh, and to Philadelphia later, and they were uh, they were good enough. There was always something. There was always you know Jean tell breaking a leg, breaking an ankle. And right. There was always something going wrong with those teams, and it was a shame because they really that was a legendary Rangers team, um, and probably or arguably after the '93-'94 team. The best team maybe they've had in the last 80 years. Um, so <laughs> that team that team, team did do everything, but win.
0: Yeah, as you say, Rick, a real shame. Uh, so, some great names that uh, from again from my youth that uh, I remember from that hockey team, and uh, just just a real shame that they didn't go any further. Because yeah. they, they had the horses, they really did, but uh, things yeah. things didn't break their way, that's all.
3: Well, no they ran into a guy named Bobby Orr. Yeah,
0: <laughs> for right. Thing. Yep, you're and, exactly yeah. right. Now, the, the curse, what does that refer to?
3: Well, the curse is the, is the curse of, of uh, Red Dutton, basically. Um, when the Rangers won the, there were, there were actually two thoughts of that curse. When the Rangers won the cup in 1940, um, the owners were said to have uh, burned the mortgage, which they paid off, in the Stanley Cup itself, which you know may have brought a, may or may not have brought upon a curse. Oh, but boy. the real curse was the curse of Red Dutton, who uh, owned the other team, the New York Americans, and when the Rangers, uh, he felt the Rangers drove them out of Madison Square Garden, and he. Claimed to have put a curse on the Rangers that they would never win a Stanley Cup again in his lifetime, and, uh, and in fact, they did not.
0: I'm sure that uh, that chapter called the curse will be uh, a real enlightenment to a lot of Ranger fans <laughs> because I bet I bet the majority of them don't don't uh, know what that means.
3: Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure they don't. But you know, when when you go 54 years without a Stanley Cup. People people want to believe that there's something else at work there.
2: Oh sure. And,
3: uh, and who knows? I mean, maybe now it's the uh, it, maybe now it's the curse of Mike Keenan, you know, selling your soul to hire <laughs> yeah. Mike Keenan, or the curse of letting Mark Messier get away. Yeah. In 1997, it's more, you know, it could be one of those things. But then it's going to be 30 years this spring.
0: Yeah, it doesn't seem that long, but it certainly yeah. is. Now, yeah. the slaying of the dragon does that have to do with Messier?
3: Yeah, you know Messier's arrival and um, and how they went about winning that Stanley Cup in ninety three ninety four, and um, we do a whole big chapter on the regular season, which was chaotic and hectic and but magnificent at the same time, and then uh, another chapter on the actual playoffs, which was. Just so full of storylines, um, right, you know, f- throughout, throughout that whole playoff series, right to the very end. And then even after, the play- even after it was over, the, the stories of how they celebrated the cup and the stories of Mike Keenan getting out of his contract with four years left on it and bolting the Rangers after winning Oof. the Stanley Cup. Um, so yeah, there was a lot, there was a lot happening there in uh, that one year. Um, and, and it went right into, the following year. It can't be carried right into the following year.
0: Mm-hmm. We are speaking tonight on Sports Talk New York with Rick Carpiniello. He is the author of A Curated History of the Broadway Blue Shirts uh, from Triumph Books. And uh, do you feel, Rick, I'll ask you, and I probably know the answer already, the, the series against the New Jersey Devils back then during that run, is yeah. that the greatest series in the history of hockey?
3: Uh, I can't speak for the history of hockey, but I can speak for it's the greatest one I've ever seen. Right, okay. And I've been around for a long time. You know, that, it was it was brutal, it was vicious, there was skill, there was talent. It was two different styles of hockey teams. Um, and when it was over, there were guys with separated shoulders and broken, you know, cracked sternums and all kinds of injuries. Um and the Rangers had to go on with those mm-hmm. injuries. You know, I remember Kevin Lowe playing in the Stanley Cup Final with a separated shoulder, and you know some Sergei Zubov was hurt for the whole entire Stanley Cup Final, and Adam Graves needed surgery after the season. So there was, it was a vicious, vicious thing. And then you, you know, and again, like the Islanders in 1979, you look at what the Devils did after that, and they won their three Stanley Cups, and they won the following year, they won the Stanley Cup, and. Marty Bauder, who was a rookie goalie in that '93-'94 playoff series, went on to have, you know, arguably the greatest career any goalie's ever had. So um, there, there was a lot to that series, and, and again, there were, there were stories there too. And, and there, again, the Rangers were in chaos for some of it, some of that series. And then, of course, you have the two, the last two games, which were absolutely epic. The Mark Messier guarantee. In game six and the hat trick that he scored to get them, to keep them alive, mm-hmm. basically not make, not let the curse continue to live. Right. And then, and then the game seven where uh, Valerie Zelopoukin ties the game with 7.7 seconds left and the Rangers win it on Matteau's goal, Stefan Matteo's, Stefan Matos, Stefan Matos' famous goal uh, in, in double overtime. To get them to the Stanley Cup final, well, that was just an epic series. Just you know, one for the one for the ages, um, and perhaps the best ever.
0: Maybe uh, makes Howie Rose uh, a, a bigger legend than he already is. Uh, that
3: game and, seven, and, <laughs> and, yeah. And, and there's there's, a, there's quite a bit in, in the book about Howie's call that night, and mm-hmm. uh, um, you know how he went about finding that call and. And how he panicked when they, when Sal Macina, his partner, said after a little while, he wasn't sure if Matteo scored it. It might have been teeking in and Howie had already gone off on this rant. <laughs> Matteo, Matteo, Matteo. Oh no. What yeah. if it was in? And so, so we talked to Howie quite a bit, um, for, for that chapter of the book. Nice. And, uh, I think, I think that's fascinating too.
0: You kids, I hope uh, you're listening closely, especially you Ranger fans out there, the little guys, little girls, uh, dropping a lot of nice names here for you to Google. I hope you're writing them down. Uh, the Battle of the Hudson is what uh, Rick and I are talking about back uh, when the Rangers won the Cup. And, uh, the it, as I said, we're we're dropping a lot of big names here, and I hope you guys can pay attention and and Google them, and uh, you'll learn learn more than you already know about uh, the Rangers and the sport of hockey. Now, now the drought, uh,
3: which is part four, Rick.
0: Tell, yeah. tell us, uh, uh, give us a small synopsis about that. Well, you
3: know, I think that I think that um, after they had the. Messier-Wayne Gretzky reunion in ninety six ninety seven
2: 97
3: mm-hmm. um, was a real disaster for the team because they were, the upper management ownership and and upper management were convinced that uh, they could do without Mark Messier. And I think they were still a little ticked off with Mark and his father, who was also his agent, uh, for the very tough stance they took in the previous negotiation of Mark's contract, which came right after the Stanley Cup. So, um, I think all along I kind of knew, and some people did, that they were planning on letting Mark go after that season. Uh, the Rangers and Gretzky and Messier went to the Eastern Conference Final that year, and then Messier was gone, and you know he was the, he was the guy who made. As big a difference as any athlete could possibly have made in any organization when he arrived, and now they're they're basically shown in the door, and I think the impact, the negative impact, was just as large. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't make the playoffs for seven years after that, and that that's a drought. <laughs> yeah, those you're, are you're those exactly are the dark right. I, I, I call them the dark ages too, in the sub-chapter. That's. That's a real bad time in team history. Um, the, you know, the GM, Neil Smith, who was the architect of the Stanley Cup team, was fired. Um, mm-hmm. Glenn Saylor came in. And they had coaches from John Muckler to Ron Lowe to Brian Trotter. It was just, it yeah. really was a disaster of a time for the organization.
0: It was. It, it uh, I, I don't even like thinking about it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's so horrible, the, the, the people they brought in. To, to manage yep. that team, and the, the dark ages that you say as you say fits it fits it perfectly and
3: yep. uh the rebuild
0: the, do you make it yep. all sound better in the rebuild, Rick
3: well you know the funny thing is you know when I left when I left the beat and when I retired and then when I started to write the book, the rebuild had reached a corner um Jim Dolan the owner had fired. John Davidson, the president, and Jeff Courtney, the general manager, and hired Chris Riley, who then fired the coach, David Quinn. And, uh, but still, I thought everything was kind of on track in terms of player personnel. But we, what we didn't know was that Alexei Lafreniere was going to really struggle in his first couple of years. Uh, Capo Caco was going to struggle in his first couple of years. Filippito was going to take a while to become a player. Yeah, and then others like Vitali Kravtsov was never going to make it. The Elias Anderson was a disaster of a draft pick. Um, there were some things in there that really went terribly wrong. Uh, the Pavel Buchnevich trade, although they they felt it was inevitable, was it was a really bad trade for them, which which they didn't overcome. So I'm not sure where the rebuild is right now, but I do know that if the Rangers are going to be contenders. The kid, the young kids who are still here, well, there aren't as many as we thought were going to be here. Lafreniere, Kako, Keedle, Keandre Miller, maybe even Braden Schneider and Will Cooley. These kids are going to have to be, they're going to have to turn out to be legit players. And some of them have to be top of the lineup players. Um, they look so far in the, last, in the first few games of the season like maybe they're getting ready to do that, but they have to do it. And, or else the rebuild is kind of st- kind of halted. Um, you know, the, their their core is really good, but it's not getting any younger. Right. So, uh, so yeah. So when I left the when I left the beat in 21, I thought the rebuild was really in a good place, um, despite the firings and the house cleaning. Um, now it's a little more questionable, I think.
0: Yeah, the, the funny part, Rick Rick Carpiniello, with us tonight on the program, talking about the Rangers, um, the the uh, Brad Park era ended kind of uh, crazily, too, if you if you will, uh, with trades and coaching changes, and it was it was sort of similar where, where they let uh, really legendary Rangers go and bring in yeah. guys that don't really fit the puzzle and yeah. and expect to win. And uh, it really uh, derailed them for for a long time. So I can see exactly what happened with the Rangers. And as you say, bringing in uh, John Muckler for an example, uh, yeah. j- just the wrong answer. And yeah, uh, th- for sure. this is all chronicled, folks, in in Rick's new book, uh, New York Rangers: A Curated History of the Blue Shirts. What, what uh, guys that you spoke to for the book? Who uh, who was your favorite? Uh, who was the biggest surprise that you spoke to? Uh, the, what, what are the better uh, sources that you used.
3: Yeah. Well, the, you know, interestingly enough, and I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm lazy, I took the lazy shortcut way of doing <laughs> this book, but I didn't do a lot of new work. Okay. And, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the interviews in the book were from stories I had written over the years, um, and from just from things that I remembered over the years. I didn't do a lot of new interviews, um, but I did do uh, a bunch of stories for uh, The Athletic, uh, some historical stories on the 78, 79 team, for example, and then on some of the anniversaries of the 93, 94 team. And um, so one of them was, uh, one of my favorites was talking to Stefan Mattel and how he struggled at first with, being a celebrity, and not only a celebrity, but he was a, he was a legend. Right. He barely, he, he didn't play two full seasons for the Rangers, but because of one moment, he became an absolute hero, and he didn't handle that very well. He struggled with that, being a celebrity and being, having people come up to him on the streets and hugging him and kissing him, and <laughs> he, he really didn't handle that well at first. Now he's, he's come to learn to, Accepted. So that was a real cool interview, I thought. And then yeah. one of my other favorite stories was uh, the 2000 NHL draft in in Calgary, when the Rangers were sitting around and, and there were some leftovers from Neil Smith's uh, front office, including Don Maloney, the assistant GM, and Glenn Saylor was brand new. He had just been hired earlier that month, so there was there was a little bit of uh, unknown going into that draft. And yet, here they were on the second day in the seventh round, and they weren't sure what they were going to do. And they're sitting around discussing, and they end up picking a guy named Henrik Lundqvist. So, in the seventh round of the draft. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I I did do some interviews with Don Maloney about how that how that pick actually uh, came to be, and it was it was kind of a funny story, um, the way that they they kind of argued pickered back and forth a little bit, and and, they, and ultimately who won was the European scout, Krista Rockstrom, who had scouted Lundquist, and they weren't sure what he was going to be. They certainly didn't, you know, if they, if they knew he was going to be a Hall of Famer, they would have picked him in the first round. Right, yeah. So, <laughs> so, 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 you know, I think, you know, there was a lot of luck involved, and uh, it, it could easily have been someone else they picked there, or Lundquist could easily have been gone. But they ended up... Uh, making a great draft pick that kind of saved them for whatever it was, 15, 16 years Mm -hmm. of the Lundqvist era.
0: Solved the problem, that's for sure. And uh, Great story there, Rick. Great story about how uh, Henrik Lundqvist came to join the Rangers. And also, uh, I'm sure the folks would enjoy the story about Stefan Matteau, about uh, his goal and how he really had a hard time dealing with with the celebrity. And, uh... I didn't know that, and that is a great portion of the book, and folks, this book is full of moments like that, and uh, Rick, it's been a pleasure having you with us tonight, uh, again, the book is titled The Franchise, The New York Rangers, A Curated History of the Blue Shirts, and it's from our friends in Chicago out of Triumph Books, available uh, Barnes & Noble Amazon, Rick?
3: Everywhere. Anywhere yeah. you buy books, you can buy this book. Where, also, wherever you shop stores. for
0: your literature, folks. Yeah, it, that's it, right. it, it will be there. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us uh, out here on Long Island, Rick. And we wish you nothing but the best with the book.
3: Hey, Bill. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a real pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. And uh, after that Giants-Jets game today, anything would be a pleasure. Right? <laughs>
0: Uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Jet fan, and it was rough to swallow, Rick. Oh, so yeah, <laughs> well,
1: you, it was right. well, thank you again. So you I take care. It. That's Rick Carpinello,
0: folks. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests one more time, the immortal Brad Park and Rick Carpinello, my engineer Brian Graves, and, of course, you guys. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next Sunday, November 5th. Till then, Be safe, be well. Bill Donahue, wishing you a good evening, folks.
3: The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.